Welcome to Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the University of Wisconsin Cinematheque. My name is Jim Healy, and I'm the Cinematheque's Director of Programming. This week, the Cinematheque is presenting another terrific movie that you can watch at home for free, The Gray Fox, a Western adventure and love story originally released to American cinemas in 1983 that has been recently restored. One of the best remembered of all contemporary Canadian features, The Gray Fox tells the lyrical and legendary saga of real-life outlaw Bill Miner, who's played by Richard Farnsworth. And it's set in the early years of the 20th century. Miner finds it difficult to fit into polite American society after spending more than 30 years in prison for stagecoach robbing, and inspired by a classic silent movie, Miner then relocates to British Columbia, where he finds romance with an outspoken and independent artist, played by Jackie Burroughs, and a new career as the leader of a train-robbing gang. The Gray Fox marked the feature debut of Oscar-nominated director Philip Borsos, whose films have been noted for their gentle rhythms and pictorial beauty. Only 27 years old during the production of The Gray Fox, Borsos and his movie brought widespread recognition to former stuntman and Western bit player Richard Farnsworth, who turned 60 during production. The successful original release of The Gray Fox launched two busy decades of character actor work for Farnsworth, culminating in his Oscar-nominating leading role in David Lynch's The Straight Story in 1999. The Cinematheque is offering a limited number of opportunities to watch The Gray Fox at home for free this week. To receive your free online access, send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu. That's info at cinema.wisc.edu. And put the words Gray Fox in the subject line or in the first line of the email. We have two special guests on Cinema Talk this week. Later on, we'll chat with Mary Sweeney, co-writer, producer, and editor of The Straight Story, who shares her memories of Richard Farnsworth. But first, we talk with the veteran producer of The Gray Fox, Peter O'Brien. O'Brien was the associate producer of the 1977 Canadian cult classic Outrageous, and then became a full producer on such films as Love at First Sight, which marked the first starring role for Dan Aykroyd, and Fast Company, a non-horror race car movie from director David Cronenberg. After The Gray Fox, O'Brien produced the widely acclaimed Canadian movie My American Cousin, and then two more features directed by Philip Borsos, Disney's One Magic Christmas, which is currently streaming on Disney+, and Far From Home, The Adventures of Yellow Dog, which you can find on HBO Max and HBO Now. In 2003, O'Brien became a director with Hollywood North, a comedic look back at the era of Canadian filmmaking that the Gray Fox sprang from, and an era that has now become known as the tax shelter years. Peter O'Brien spoke with us from Toronto. Peter, welcome to our podcast, Cinema Talk. Um, the Gray Fox is not only one of the best and most enduring Canadian features, period. It's a bit of a miracle in that it was produced during an era of Canadian filmmaking that, uh, let's say, favored quantity over quality. Uh, and that became known as the tax shelter era. 
Um, mm -hmm. It's an era that later provided the inspiration for a feature film you directed in 2003 called Hollywood North. Uh, can you just tell our listeners what was meant by a tax shelter movie? Absolutely. It, it, it meant that the, the film as an asset could be <clears throat> financed by the sale of public shares that allowed the investor 100% write-off on their taxes. <clears throat> it was called capital cost allowance. And um, I think that there were three um, items that were allowed, and they were apartment buildings, aircraft leasing, and feature films. <laughs> <laughs> and so, <clears throat> It, it started to become, the idea was, it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, way to um, promote Canadian cinema, to get Canadian films financed, and it worked very well. I did two films that way, one, The Grey Fox, and My American Cousin was the other one. But very soon, the system fell into the hands of, uh, naturally, brokers and investors, and um, uh, the sorts of people who uh, were able to deal with the complications of finance, and 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 therefore the the the, the idea of a national cinema being the result um, uh, fell apart. Well, so and and we're talking roughly the years uh, in terms of production about seventy eight to eighty two, eighty one. I think that's it, it. It's gone on longer. It went on longer. Uh, with a slightly more arcane system um, that that wasn't exploited in the same way, but but you're right about uh, those years, 78, 79 to uh, 82, say, 83 maybe. Right, and it, a couple things I know about it was that at least at first it targeted individuals uh, for investing, so it could be certain high-income bracket individuals, like I guess you know doctors and dentists and and lawyers yeah. and and they would be encouraged by their accountants to uh at the end of the year when it came time to deal with the taxes to invest them into these productions uh did, absolutely did you, right <clears throat> did you ever have to deal with though you know uh individuals like that that had no experience in in film and 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 as a producer what what did that mean for you I did have to deal with them, but not in uh, the creative sense. In other words, <laughs> I didn't have to take notes from them uh, about the film, but uh, I certainly, um, certainly I did. Uh, <clears throat> on December 31st of uh, that year when we made the film, uh, we still had units to sell. Uh, they were called units, these shares, and they, were, they represented a divided interest in the copyright. Hmm. And... Um, uh, my phone rang in my office, and uh, a guy from Alberta, Canada, said, uh, are there any uh, units left? And I said, yes, there are. There, he said, how many? I said, there are 40 units left. They were $5,000 each. Um, <laughs> that's $200,000. He said, great, I'll take them. <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and so the film was financed on the, at the last possible minute uh, on the last day. Uh, and he was a uh, a medical lab guy. So you're right about doctors uh, and dentists. The general sort of joke at the time was orthodontists <laughs> is what uh, 
does anybody know a rich orthodontist? (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I was thinking about the gray fox is that it has a number of changes of seasons uh, in the film um, and shows, you know, all, all kinds of seasons. Did that was it was it stretched out over a longer period or was it just uh, are, are we watching uh, maybe actors fake being warm I suppose in, in some scenes? No, it, it it was shot in the fall and so it was shot between uh, the end of October to the beginning of December that sort of thing, and in that period of time uh, in British Columbia I think you can find pretty much all of that. Um, Spring isn't there, obviously, but um, uh, I think there's there are a couple of sort of country meadow type of scenes. Mm, right. When Bill arrives at his sister's house after he's released from prison, that looks kind of like the spring, but um, it, it wasn't. It was October. Can take a um, a little bit step backward. How did it the film uh, as a project come together before the investors uh, became involved? Philip Borsos grew up in uh, a town where the, where Bill Miner robbed the first train that he robbed uh, in BC. Um, that town is it was called Mission at, at the turn of the century into the 20th century, but I don't think I think its name was changed or uh, Philip grew up the next town. But but it was part of his growing up, part of the mythology of the place where he grew up and uh, particularly as a teenager and um, he had always thought it should be a movie and after he'd made um, some really stunning short films uh, one of which was nominated for an Oscar um, partly because of the capital cost allowance we just talked about Hmm. um, it looked like there was an opportunity to make a feature film and uh, particularly since he was having success and the Oscar thing is a real, you know, uh, it was nominated for an Oscar, didn't win the Oscar, I don't think. But he um, uh, he went ahead and started doing it. And um, then he started looking for a producer um, who could help with that. And that, luckily for me, uh, turned out to be me. So you met when you just after you read the script i guess yes the script wasn't um uh, when i came along my my friend john hunter the writer who is the credit for has the credit for writing this movie um he came uh, along with me because there needed to be uh, really a new script hmm. and, and and uh I guess he found you because um, did it have anything to do with the fact that you had produced Outrageous, which I know had had some success outside of Canada? I was associate producer on Outrageous. I had uh, made some other films as well, um, uh, which I had produced. I I had produced the film I produced before uh, The Gray Fox was the only film of David Cronenberg's, which is, uh, you know, not sort of his brand and not thematic to what, what he usually does. And it was a drag racing movie called Fast Company, <laughs> sort, of a, sort of a drive-in movie with John Saxon and Bill Smith, William Smith and 
uh, that sort of a cast. And we went to, David and I went out to Alberta and did that. And I think, I think Philip heard about that, uh, I think. Um, um, anyway, I guess I was one of the people he heard uh, might, might get on with him. I mean, he, uh, he, he was a very demanding uh, director and um, needed somebody who understood that. It was a smart choice because obviously you had a, a, a small track record at that point and you went on to make a number of other uh, significant films. It seems to me that, you know, when we think of the enduring films produced in this era, that the few that come to mind are The Gray Fox and My American Cousin, which came out, was at the tail end of it. Uh, the Silent Partner is another one, Daryl Duke's film, and and the David Cronenberg films. Uh, yes. and you had you had a hand in in the majority of them. So Peter, uh, in the early eighties, um, Gray Fox is w- one of the few westerns released at all, um, and and one of the few to have a significant, uh, certainly, maybe the only western released between eighty and eighty five to have a significant audience. I know that uh, I had thought previously that the, the production and everything came much later, but it seems to me that the production overlapped with the original release, disastrous release of Heaven's Gate. Um, and I'm wondering if uh, the film was packaged a, as a Western and if you had any sort of met any sort of resistance to it as a Western or did you sell it as, as something different? It was sold really as a romance, even though it was a Western. The, the original script was strictly the, the train robberies and that sort of thing. And um, we started, it, it became a romance when the two actors obviously uh, had some magic together. And uh, I remember during the shooting of the film that um, uh, a delegation from the crew came to meet me <laughs> and said, uh, what's all this, uh, you know, lovey-dovey stuff? We, we, we signed up to make a Western and a, this is, this is the crew. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, don't worry, uh, all, you know, all, all, that, all the robberies and everything are in the film, but this, this is an additional uh, uh, element and uh, level that will increase the value of the film and make it a, a better entertainment. Anyway, um, we had uh, the great Jeff Dowd, and I don't know if you know who that is, but Je- yes, Jeff Dowd was called, at least when we worked with him, a producer's rep. And um, it was him who uh, identified the film as a romance in, in this sense. He he hired a theater in Seattle um, and showed the film and brought people in on buses and that sort of thing. And uh, to identify, you know, got audiences together to see what it was that they were liking about the film. And um, the, the questionnaires, particularly, uh, it's about an old person that the uh, Bill Miner is uh, late in life. Um, and it it showed up as something that was a very touching romantic story between an old 
train robber or a stagecoach robber and a photographer. And, uh, and so it was um, uh, the, the poster, uh, which I've got on the wall here, uh, the one she has the two of them dancing in a frame at the bottom of the poster. That was, of course, added on once it was realized that, uh, that the romance was important to the audience. <laughs> I, I should point out for our listeners that Jeff Dowd, your promotional rep, uh, his nickname is The Dude, and he provided the Coen brothers the inspiration for Jeff Lebowski. Um, he, he is the dude, or as he says, you can call me Duderino or <laughs> El Dudo or whatever it is, but that was him. And um, what, you know, the other thing I remember about the release of the film uh, was a lot was made up about the fact that here were these two exciting new talents, a uh, an, an, an actor in his 60s, a leading man, who most audiences hadn't really seen before, at least they probably hadn't realized they hadn't seen Richard Farnsworth before, and a director who was still in his 20s. That's right. And uh, I, I remember that... Uh, you know that was that was kind of one of the one of the novelty aspects of the film that it, here was this gentle lyrical movie that was also a western and a love story and all these things and it caught on uh pretty well and played for quite a long time in in american theaters as or us theaters as i remember it uh yes. you, what else can you tell us about the release at the time and and how it caught on and and when it caught on the film was released at the same time as tender mercies and the and the two of them were, were reviewed almost always on the same page of uh, all the newspapers. And, um, and it was a fine film too, and it was made by Bruce Beresford. And um, Philip had, uh, Philip Borsos, uh, director of The Grey Fox, was born in Tasmania in uh, Australia. And, um, and so quite a bit at home was made uh, of that. And, and we were saying that it's high time we stopped trying to make copycat American films and started making Australian films. <laughs> but uh, those two films went out at the same time. Um, I, I, I don't think they got in each other's way in a wonderful sort of way. And I think that it helped uh, The Grey Fox. Um, the Gray Fox, you know, is a gentle western. It's a, it's got some tough things in it, but it's a northwestern. I like to call it, um, and um, it's a, a lyrical film. You know, it's a a beautiful film, a lyrical film. So it's not an action western, although the whole film, of course, is a is a is a chase to the extent that the Pinkertons are trying to catch Bill Miner, but. Um, uh, and it's a love story. So um, these two films went out together and it really worked. It was just great. And the film played for weeks on end um, in single theaters. So in the, what, what do you call that? It's not a showcase. The, the platforming of it had a particular name, mm. but uh, it just went in a particular theater uh, and stayed. And kind of like an art house exclusive. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> so you, you, in New York, uh, 
um, on Second Avenue. Um, it, it stayed there and the same in L.A. And all the major cities just kept kept it for several weeks. One thing I noticed uh, that I thought was unusual or maybe it wasn't unusual at the time was that uh, the first screenings of The Grey Fox were in 1982 at a couple of festivals, but not the Toronto International Film Festival. Was that uh, deliberate? Was the Toronto Festival different at that time or, or was it a disappointment to not get into that festival? Uh, it, it What happened was uh, that... Um, but you're quite right. The film took some time to edit. It was shot in late 1980 and was in post-production throughout 1981 um, and was ready in ni- not till 1982. And um, I guess it was screened. So the 1982 festival, which was what, what it's it's in September now. I think it was in September then. But um Wayne Clarkson was the executive director uh, or, or the um, director of the festival at the time, uh, who was a great friend of mine. And uh, but, for, but for a while, our friendship uh, went out the window because he wanted the Gray Fox in the festival. Um, he needed, he, they had uh, started something, I think at that time, called Perspectives Canada or Perspective Canada, a new program for Canadian films. And this was the, you know, let's say one of the best of the day or perhaps the best of that year or what have you. And um, so it would look bad if he did not have that film in his festival. And um, the distributor, uh, which was UA Classics, uh, you may remember, uh, and the UA obviously went in with MGM, who bought it, and it became MGM UA. In those days, UA was separate, and these classic groups um, uh, within studios started to distribute films like The Great Fox. So the UA Classics had the film, and the distributor, the Canadian distributor of the a woman called Linda B. It was her decision to not allow it into the festival. Mm. <laughs> I was in favor of it, and I argued uh, strenuously, can we please have it in TIFF? And she said, no, we're not going to. Um, They'll end up having three screenings, and we'll lose about 1,500 tickets. (laughs) What is the reason? And I said, yeah, but that's how we build uh, and promote the film. But that was something that she was, she felt that the festival, with other films she was distributing, wasn't being fair in that respect and was over exploiting her films. The Gray Fox was one of them. So it didn't get a tiff. <laughs> I understand that kind of, uh, that kind of thinking. We've encountered it before as festival programmers. Uh, <laughs> um, you went on to produce two more Philip Borsos features, uh, both for major studios, one magic Christmas, which was released by Disney and, Far From Home, The Adventures of Yellow Dog, which was released by 20th Century Fox. Can you tell us about uh, Borso's special qualities uh, as a filmmaker? Yes. Um, <clears throat> you know, his, his early death uh, to many of us, you know, what we, we miss him, but we also miss the films he didn't make um, because he had even, you know, b- before he died at 41 years old, uh, of leukemia, he had a number of fantastic, beautiful movies he, that you know that he wanted to do. 
And um, um, anyway, it, one of them was the Cider House Rules, actually, the John Irving right. novel. And uh, and we had the rights, but they they reverted to uh, back to John uh, when Philip died. There was a, a clause uh, in the agreement. But Philip's quality, um, apart from apart from being such a strong visual director, um, uh, the um, his cameraman, Frank Tidy on The Gray Fox had on the slate, um, every frame a Rembrandt hmm. um, is what the, <laughs> the slogan was. But Philip was, you know, never satisfied. You know, it was never beautiful enough. His stories and his films um, had a kind of, uh, relentless editing. Uh, they were slow, they but they build had a build, and um, uh, slow. I don't mean slow. I just mean uh, there was no rush to them. They proceeded, and you could. What's wonderful about the Gray Fox is you can really look at every scene and look at every frame and 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 enjoy it. Um, and. Uh, I, I think uh, th this build is is something that I think uh, is particularly wonderful about his filmmaking, and I think um, I think also his his stories uh, are take place always in a landscape. He he, he loves uh, um, a landscape. Uh, British Columbia, of course, um, uh, is where he was from, and he knew it uh, so well, and um, and so he showed it. Um, uh, in such a beautiful way, um, and so the, the the characters are are in a land always sort of part of a landscape. Ben and I were talking that uh, the the kind of outlier among his filmography is a of a, a very good but uh, pretty nasty thriller called The Mean Season. Yes, <clears throat> it was released in 1985. It's 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 definitely the most uh, adult oriented of his films, I would say. Um, and it was released the same year as a film you produced, One Magic Christmas. Um, so another thing Mary Sweeney mentioned was that she was the uh, sound editor on uh, what or the assistant sound editor on Mean Season. She didn't get credit for the film, but she never got them. She never got to meet Philip, and uh, and she said he wasn't really around at that point of the post production. And I assumed it was because those movies were made so close together that he must have gone on to shooting or pre production of of One Magic Christmas. Do you remember if I remember in pre production of One Magic Christmas that they that the producers of uh, the Mean Season called him uh, and uh, tried to get a, a, a schedule going where he could go out on the road to promote uh, the mean season. And I think, I think it didn't happen. And I think it was actually uh, a problem. And I think that um, uh, uh, there, there were, there were, there were arguments and dissatisfaction over that, hmm. unfortunately, but you're quite right. That's the reason why um, the, the one magic Christmas was right after the mean season. Uh, so, were there any other collaborations that the two of you wanted to get made? Were you were you going to be the producer of Cider House Rules? Yes, <clears throat> I was, and um, a futuristic uh, book about um, uh, discovering um, a, a former civilization um, 
uh, Canticle, a Canticle for Leibowitz? Yes. So Philip uh, and I acquired the rights to a Canticle for Leibowitz. And uh, this was Philip's greatest ambition uh, to make that film. And at the time, I think it was being taught in most, I, I'm not sure, second, third year English courses in a lot of universities in the United States. Mm. And, um, so it, it was a cult. It was kind of a cult book. And uh, so that's another of the ones that we were working on. Uh, a, a, an, another one in terms of the character in a landscape um, kind of idea or vision of his um, um, uh, a Canadian uh, guy, a Finnish guy from Finland during the Great Depression built a ship in uh, Saskatchewan um, in the Dust Bowl uh, with the idea of sailing it home uh, to Finland. Uh, by getting it into the North Saskatchewan River and out into Hudson's Bay. But he, <laughs> and this story was called The Dust Ship. And The Dust Ship, I would say, was a very typical Philip story. Uh, it was all about, you know, the prairie and the wind and the dust and, the, and um, uh, this eccentric guy. It sounds Herzogian, <laughs> like a oh, Werner Herzog. It, it, it absolutely is Herzog and completely Fitz Geraldo, uh, here we come. So uh, just a couple more questions. I wanted to ask you about Richard Farnsworth. He, he did have an Oscar nomination at the time uh, that, he, that he made The Gray Fox, but was he considered at all uh, a, a bankable star at this for the investors in the tax shelter era, or did that just not matter at this point? Um, the... The tax shelter guys were mainly British Columbians, uh, you know, where Philip was from, and it was a local story. So it didn't matter that much. Um, uh, I, I hate to talk about other people who, you know, at first Philip wanted Harry Dean Stanton to play the great box. And Harry Dean uh, was doing one from the heart. And um, uh, I, he would have, I'm sure, been great, but. I think we really were uh, really lucky to uh, that he that in fact he was doing something else and Richard who was so perfect for the part and even looked like uh, the character in his wanted posters um, uh, we were lucky he was not a star he was never a star but he became um, well known for the Gray Fox and for uh, he was in Tom Horn but not 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 the lead was Steve McQueen, um, um, and he um, uh, it was uh, the main character in the sh in the straight story. Um, but but I don't think he became a star, but he certainly became a well known actor and an admired and appreciated actor. Also, um, we wanted Richard to to be in One Magic Christmas as the angel, mm. and. Uh, and it was played by Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think Richard's agent, uh, because, because at the time home video was just becoming a thing, when Richard Farnsworth did The Gray Fox, home video wasn't in the deal. It wasn't even mentioned, you know, I mean, it wasn't in anybody's deal. And, um, his agent uh, wanted us to 
later put it in. And, uh, but by that time we had signed this deal with United Artists to distribute the film. And they said, no, 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 we can't, we can't redo those things. And, but um, the agent held it against us. And when we asked him to do One Magic Christmas, uh, the agent wouldn't let him do it. <laughs> and so we, again, luckily we got Harry Dean. One of the striking things about Gray Fox to me is the structure and the, the, the time jumps and a bunch of those sequences that catch uh, the characters in the middle of scenes, uh, sort of montage sequences. And the fact that you mentioned uh, a long post-production period and editing process with the film and also mentioned how the on-set or on-screen chemistry uh, changed a little bit of the emphasis of the film. I wonder... Uh, how much the finished product differs from the shooting script? Well, um, I, I think um, because the shooting script also evolved uh, in exactly the same way as the editing did, and I think Philip Borsos is the kind of director who would have wanted to keep doing that for about five years you know, in editing and shooting until it was something that he really found perfect. Um, but but that, that's a good question. Um, the, the, the black and white footage, the um, uh, period footage of the great train robbery and of um, uh, the chase, the chases uh, it, once the, uh, the third robbery took place, and they knew who he was and the amount of police were after him. Um, that all, that none of that was in the shooting script. And so if, if I hope it's okay to say the cinema scene, uh, watching the great train robbery was also not in the, in the script. All of that came later. Um, Philip wanted the footage and in his short films, he uses black and white footage in the middle of those as well. And so that's a real signature of his. Um, and so we, we shot the scene with the, with the piano player and, uh, and the guy who shoots the gun uh, in, the, in this uh, little tiny theater uh, uh, about five months after we finished shooting the movie. So that was an extra thing. We had to get a little extra money for that and, um, and then get the rights uh, to the great train robbery and all that other footage. So that's something that was added. That, that's, that, that's good. Cool. And, and the um, title cards at the beginning uh, and the, uh, the kind of beautifully picturesque and picaresque ending of Bill Miner sneaking off into the, into the lake um, with his prison outfit on have a, have a kind of a, a certainly remind you of, of silent cinema and, uh, and, and the movies of, of that era. Uh, were, were the title cards also something that came in uh, after the fact to establish the story better and also to kind of evoke uh, silent cinema? Yes, um, that partly came from the great train robbery and, and built on that uh, 
theme, something that <clears throat> it's part of a, an earlier question you asked about Philip and his style. Philip um, uh, loved the old skills. His short films were about making barrels, about making nails, uh, about cutting down uh, a red cedar. Uh, and so steam engines, for example, uh, at the at the turn of the 20th century um, fascinated him. And so did, uh, you know, the, um, the the unspooling of a film and the great train robbery was that. So yes, he, he wanted to use the cards like uh, in, in an old film. Um, the, the, the holdup, the, the film opens um, with uh, a stagecoach going across the Monument Valley and then there's a stage stagecoach being held up, of course. <laughs> and so all all of that too was built in later. And I, I, I forgot to mention that. Uh, and the cards came with that. So at the end, um, you're quite right. It has it has a kind of period film look uh, at the very end. But the cards at the end had a different purpose, and that was. Um, to extend the story because of the romance. What happened to Bill Miner and Kate Flynn, the photographer? And so the cards speculate uh, only that they got together later on in Chicago <laughs> and, and in, in Paris, um, which was great fun. And it's amazing what a difference it makes. I think also that at the encouragement of the dude, uh, Jeff Dowd, Jeff Dowd said, listen, everybody wants to know uh, what happened at the end. I mean, can you put a card in to say they got together or something? And uh, so I think that was partly Jeff's idea. Can, uh, just one last question, which is, uh, it's wonderful that we're able to remind people of these, you know, special qualities of Richard Farnsworth as a performer and Philip Borsos as a filmmaker with this, with this re-release. Um, how did uh, how did we're, we're really and we're really glad to be offering it to our viewers this week too. Um, how did it come about this uh, this particular reissue of the Gray Fox? We we have been looking uh, we being um, me as producer and um, uh, Phillips Estate as well um, looking for a new life for the film. Um, uh, the elements, the 35 millimeter original elements, meaning the negative and the uh, first copy, which is a positive and called the interpositive, which is often what you make digital copies from. Uh, we had them examined and they were, they had all the detail of the original, of, of when they were new, when they were shot and went through the camera. But the color, the colors were all fading, and um, so we knew there was, uh, you know, a, a time limit um, for this. And at the same time, here was we knew the technology was remastering things to look better than they did in the first place, practically. And um, Kino uh, Lorber um, had been interested in the film, and some others had been. Um, and so this this became these two things came together, and and uh, so we 
we talked to them and they, they said, yes, we would like to take the film uh, and uh, reissue it. And uh, together with them, we did uh, uh, the new remastering. Well, we're, we're delighted to be able to show it and we're delighted to talk to you today. It was a lot of fun. Thanks so Thank much you. for joining us. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. For the second part of this episode devoted to The Gray Fox, we talked about Richard Farnsworth with filmmaker, film teacher, and Madison native Mary Sweeney, an accomplished film and sound editor whose career began with work on such noted films as Reds and Tender Mercies. Sweeney started her long association with director David Lynch on the 1986 classic Blue Velvet. That led to editing and producing work on a number of subsequent Lynch movie and television projects, including Wild at Heart, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, Lost Highway, and Mulholland Drive. Sweeney produced, edited, and co-wrote the screenplay for Lynch's 1999 feature The Straight Story, which earned Richard Farnsworth an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor and was filmed on location in Iowa and Wisconsin. She later directed the feature film Baraboo, which screened at our 2010 Wisconsin Film Festival, and was a consulting producer for the Amazon Prime series The Romanoffs. Mary Sweeney is currently the Dino and Martha De Laurentiis Professor at the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Art and chair of the Film Independent Board of Directors. We asked her to share her memories of Richard Farnsworth before, during, and after the making of The Straight Story, Farnsworth was born in 1920, and this year marks his centennial and 20 years since his death by suicide. Well, Mary, welcome to Cinema Talk. This is our Cinematex official podcast, and um, I, I'd, I'd just like to start and, and ask uh, what you thought about The Gray Fox. If uh, I take it this wasn't the first time you'd seen it. Uh, no, it wasn't the first time I'd seen it, but it's been a long time since I saw it. And, and um, thank you for having me on the show. It's nice to have you here. Did you enjoy the film again? I did. Um, and it was very interesting to watch it now after, um, you know, um, writing, producing and editing the straight story with Richard. Um, and, you know, as an editor with the same person on screen all the time, you become so familiar with every one of their small idiosyncrasies and personal, you know, facial expressions and habits. And um, it was weird to see Richard as a younger man than I knew him so well and, and recognize so many of those um, traits. It's very poignant. It's a, uh, it's a beautiful performance and, uh, I think his first lead performance, and really, I think, aside from the straight story, those are his only two um, performances where he carries the whole movie. Right. And he, in every scene. Yeah, he, pretty he, much. In every scene, and, and, and he does it beautifully, too. Um, uh, Far Farnsworth, um, I wonder if you could talk about those those idiosyncrasies, then, or, or at least particularities to his kind of kind of acting what it what it was that he brought to a role he certainly had the experience right he'd been if not having speaking roles and he was he was familiar with being a physical presence in front of the camera with decades as a stuntman 
Yes, but it's very different. And I, um, a lot of his readings of lines were hauntingly similar to me, um, like a way in which he'd say, well, you know, he'd start a line with well, and I can't remember if we wrote that into the dialogue or not, but... Um, <laughs> Um, I, I, he had a cadence, he had a very particular cadence and I would have to say that I think the cadence was in part, um, his personality. He was, while he's, his face is so incredibly expressive, he's very laconic as a person. He's very nonverbal and, um, he sometimes, of course he was 79 years old when we shot the straight story. Um, and he was also ill. Um, in had uh, cancer and remission, um, so he was very insecure at first about being able to finish the film. You know, just worried in a very responsible way. But once he got into it, he was fine. But he, he, he would have moments where he would lose his confidence if the dialogue was too thick or mm. too long, which it wasn't very much in our film. And 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 so I think that his. Um, acting talent, you know, uh, in these lead roles was founded in his self-awareness that he knew his comfort zone in dialogue. And he converted that into a, a, an incredibly beautiful form of being laconic. I yeah. think he, he, his, his, his dialogue is very minimal in both films and he manages to pack with his expressions and the way he looks up with it, you know, and those eyes and everything, he really worked around his discomfort with dialogue, like a million bucks. He was really fantastic. Yeah, I guess that was one of his uh, hesitancies with taking the part uh, in Comes a Horseman, which was the film that kind of launched his 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 speaking career, I guess you'd call it, um, was that he just, he just didn't feel comfortable with dialogue. He also... Uh, uh, was uh, very uncomfortable with any four-letter words or any profanity. I guess. Is, uh, yeah. Well, was, that was a that that was a an interesting. Um, you know, this was, you know, with the straight story. Obviously, um, it was a very different kind of film for David to make, and he, David was really just kind of diving into how different it was in a variety of ways. And one was that he didn't want to have. Um, profanity and I think we had like doesn't give a shit or something like that in there a couple of times and Richard asked us if we could take out all profanity which meant about two or three words so that was a really there were a lot of things about um, that are all coming together on that project that really seemed like a major chord thing but another thing to go back to your original question about similarities has to do with not only the way he relied on, on um, his modes of expression with his facial features to mm -hmm. um, sell what he didn't want to have to say to, you know, in too many words. Um, there's something about Richard's, you know, his particular brand of the face, a face the camera loves that is so real. He is, he, he, his humanness, his human expression is so powerful in film. It's a very rare quality, and he really trusts it. And he knows it, and he knows how to use it, and yet he would 
you would never suspect him of having that thought process. Maybe everything I just said is true, but unconscious on his part. Right. Um, you never intellectualized it, as far as you know. Definitely. No, no. Nobody had any kind of conversations about messages or what the scene means or anything like that. Um, we just trusted Richard. You could tell from his face. You can trust him right. to understand the emotion. Here's the thing. He's the, the it's like... Um, the emotional uh, communication that he managed was so genuine and so tangible and kind of, um, you know, there's a, he has a lot of close-ups of him in this film as there were in The Straight Story. Yeah. And, and we didn't use any hair and makeup on him in The Straight Story at all. It was just raw Richard at almost 80 years old and having struggled through so many things. Also... Um, he was not mobile. He wasn't ambulatory. By the time mm. we worked with him, he he was actually walking with two canes as a person, not just as Alvin Strait. So it was really beautiful to see him move, you know, with such grace in this film again. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, one of the things that got him into the movie business was his horse riding, too, and uh, and what he what he knew about horses. And that, that got him a job on... Uh, from what I read, The Adventures of Marco Polo, which is a 1937 MGM Gary Cooper film, and uh, it was, and then he played jockeys in Marx Brothers movies and uh, rode horses in Gone with the Wind and any also number for of John uh, MGM Ford films. And John Ford movies, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that too. He said Ford scared him. Oh really? Was it chewing the handkerchiefs that scared him? <laughs> I guess he said, and, that, and that, that kept him away from from having speaking roles in movies for years because he said he always treated the stuntmen better than he treated the actors uh, who That's had speaking funny. roles, and he gravitated towards Henry Fonda, and, mm-hmm. and it was Jane Fonda who years later remembered him and put him mm-hmm. in Comes a Horseman, I guess. Yeah, uh, he's such a beautiful person. You know, he was very you know courtly and gentlemanly and. Um, you know, so lovely to be around, uh, just on the set, hanging around in between in between scenes. Um, but yeah. Um, well, that confidence that you talk about—that he, you know, he knew he didn't intellectualize it, but he knew his qualities—is um, uh, one one interesting thing that we get in the Gray Fox that we don't get in in uh, Straight Story is his uh, his, as you just said, his courtliness, his romancing of. The Jackie Burroughs character, um, who's a, an independent woman, and 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 Roger Ebert writes about this in his review uh, of the Gray Fox, it, it, uh, Farnsworth's awareness of his uh, of his sexual appeal too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to this woman. he was very court. He was very courtly and very gentlemanly. But you also, um, at the same time, you definitely picked up even when he was pushing eighty um, that he, you know. He, he, it wasn't flirting exactly, but he liked the company of women and, you know, and he liked the company of, you know, uh, smart women. And he had a companion at the time. He was a widow by the time we worked with Mm. him, widower. And um, he had a longtime companion, a lovely woman, and they were both um, active horse riders and and lived on a ranch north of Los Angeles. but um, yeah, he was such a such a such an old version, old uh, former version of you know both a very charming and seductive and gentlemanly guy. I I was just watching the straight story again, and and 
it's such a it's such a gentle movie. It's something I think it has in common with the Gray Fox. I remember when the Gray Fox came out. It came out around the same time as Tender Mercies, which is a film you did some work on too, right? I was the apprentice editor on that. That's so funny. Yeah. They were both um, kind of art house smashes at the time. That you know, in, in the case of Tender Mercies, went on to have you know Oscar nominations and. Uh, and have that even was Robert, greater popularity. Robert Duvall. Yeah, Robert Duvall won his first Oscar award for. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, there's um, there's a quality of uh, very much a quality, even maybe even more qualities of Tender Mercies. I think that find their way into the straight story than uh, um, that kind. Not just the um, not just the 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 gentleness and the kind of. Uh, sweet approach to this this american specific kind of american life and um but also the 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 episodic nature of it uh as well the, the it's really not not a plot driven film it's you're just you're with you're with a person and you you get to know them and uh and see how they interact with the people they come across in this you know there's just there's one simple odyssey in the straight story and uh and Tender Mercies kind of has a similar quality, but in The Gray Fox, it's it's uh, it it has the narrative isn't as insistent uh, either, but it's um, uh, it it there also, is. The Gray this... Fox has a little bit of a road movie feel to it because he's he's on the run, <laughs> so he's on the run and going and going from place to place and mm-hmm. you know and 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 meeting different people and kind of encountering a world he'd never seen before and uh, at least not. Uh, for a long time, can back to Farnsworth was uh, how how did it come to be that he got cast? Because I know he hadn't done he hadn't done any films for about four or five years at that point. No, he, as I say, he had had um, a bout of cancer that was in remission by the time we started started working with him. So that probably accounted for at least a year or two. I'm thinking treatment and and so forth. Um, and I don't know what the film was, but I, I somehow, I don't actually remember who mentioned it, how his name came up. But when we thought of him, both David and I felt that he was absolutely perfect, the perfect person for the role. And um, so when we approached him, he was very, um, but at first I think he just said no. Uh, because he, again, he was, you know, he, he was pushing 80 and he was in remission and he was healthy and he was riding horses and so forth, but he had to walk with a couple of canes, you know, from years of work as a stunt man, as a young man. And um, um, I think it just, you know, frightened him to think of undertaking a six, seven, eight week shoot. Um and making it through to the end. And I, we just kept working on him and we were talking about that he'd be in the, you know, in the lawnmower seat and we'd give him a special cushion and it really wouldn't be that arduous and we, you know, take good care of him and so forth. And so, but we finally, uh, and then he read the script and he really, he really loved the script. He loved the story. It was right, uh, you know, it was really a kind of perfect match for the man that he is. And, um, and also it was a, you know, very much an end of life story. So I think while we never consciously talked about those things, 
I think that was something that really spoke to him. I think there was an attraction to it for him of if he um, could make another feature film, he would want it to be something that dealt with the issues that this dealt with. And, and um, because the episodic nature of it was really uh, a sort of a philosophical um, aspect to it too. And he is... Uh, you just can understand that about him without ever having a serious conversation with him, that he is a man who uh, has a philosophical perspective on life and his life. And um, so, you know, we finally got him to agree. And um, very shortly before we were actually going to move on out to, you know, uh, Iowa and set up camp, he wanted to drop off. And it was, again, just a kind of sense of anxiety that he was going to disappoint us, that he was going to, you know, ruin the production by starting it and not being able to finish it. And it, we just, I think David um, did a beautiful job of convincing him that we would take care of him, that that wasn't going to happen. And he was in remission and he knew he wasn't sick. And, you know, it was just a lot of coaxing. And um, and in the first days of shooting, he was very anxious, you could tell. It was like, yeah, you know, feeling not so great, um, but I think maybe more worrying, worrying about not being sick or getting sick again being the main problem. And But once he got past about the first six, five or six days, he just, he just, it just turned a corner and he realized he was going to, he was fine and he was enjoying himself and everybody was treating him really well. And, uh, we weren't bathing him or anything, but he was, he was comfortable. And, um, he just, he, then he was like hopping up out of chairs and it was completely different all the way through the end of the shoot, which is great. You know, a couple of things about him and his performance in, in both films, uh, is what a great listener he is. When other people are talking, and you can, you can have him in a scene where it's. I mean, I'm thinking, of course, in the straight story of the of the, the first of the two bar scenes towards the end with the uh, with the other veteran, yeah. and and the first half of the scene is is his listening, mm-hmm. um, with cutting between the two faces, and then, yeah. um, and then his own monologue, yeah. about it, um, and that's and that's just something that. Uh, I guess you know, as a as a as a writer, maybe you don't think about as much, but um, certainly as an editor, it's, it's something that's useful, right? Oh, I, I, that face! You know, I, I, this is the really you know very moving part of watching this again, the Gray Fox again. It was um, you know how much I loved his face and how much he gave me, how much ammunition he gave me with mm-hmm. that face for for hesitation and and you know like a kind of a looking away that just you know spoke of so much sorrow his face is so incredibly expressive and it was such a um oh my god such a gift and such a pleasure to cut scenes emotional scenes particularly with him and another scene was with the girl who the hitchhiker in the fire the you know um campfire uh scene and but the scene with um Oh, God, I'm trying to remember that actor's name. He was so beautiful. Wilkie something from Minneapolis um, with the war veterans. That was a really interesting scene to edit because it hit, the other actor was so moved 
that he was literally, you know, blubbering in mm. certain parts of the scene. He was, you know, sobbing uncontrollably, which was way too much sure. for the for the scene itself. But um, so much of Richard's kind of little sidelong glances and stuff like that had so much concern in them, um, you know, for his fellow actor, but also for for what they were talking about and. And in some critical scenes, that's one of them. And then at the end with Harry Dean Stanton, he's got this little catch in his voice that just like tears your heart out. I mean, he's so minimal, but so incredibly expressive in visual ways, which as an editor um, is just so great to be able to just keep it quiet and keep all this space and very little speaking and hugely emotional scenes. Yeah, it's just what makes it such a great movie. It's just such a wonderful cinematic experience. Um, just those, and it's it's the, the silences as much as the as the as the 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 gentle handling of the minimal dialogue. And he his voice is really a quality. I guess is is not discussed as much either uh, I've, I've found but it's just it's it's really like a warm uh, warm yeah. bath <laughs> it's like very velvety you know uh, but kind of raspy and also it's um he's got a little you know he's got a twang that's very unidentifiable it's not southern right. it's not too folksy it's not cheesy it's just richard and it has a a timelessness about it yeah, if someone wanted to, I was thinking about that. If someone wanted to claim it as Midwestern, I guess they could. You could say, yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, no, you don't know what Midwestern is. It's not Richard. <laughs> well, yeah, there are there are there are a few uh, key examples of that uh, classic Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, yes. like Fargo. <laughs> yeah, like Fargo, but uh, yeah, but not as not as uh, not as exaggerated. So he fits he fits in perfectly into the yeah. into the world. Uh, of the it might film. be a little Canadian. It might be a little Canadian, really, because it's sort of neutral, neutral and timeless in a little way. Well, that's uh, and that makes him work so perfectly in the Gray Fox, too. I guess. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, definitely. F- fits into that world uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it might be a hard question, but um, uh, do you we, we want to reflect at all on on his death and 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 it's been twenty years. This is a centennial, yeah. by the way. He would have been 100 later this year. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was about to turn 80. That's right. Um, uh, you know, uh, it was very sh- shocking to get the news, of course. Um, I, ha- I think I heard that he, he either feared he was going, you know, that remission was, you know, going away, that he was sort of getting sick again, or, you know, maybe he imagined it, or maybe he was told that. I think that was just kind of something I heard afterwards. Um, and, of course, the success, his success more than anybody's uh, with the straight story, you know, hadn't hadn't been that long before. Um, in So I guess since we released in 99... The Academy Awards was it? I guess was it ninety nine or two thousand? He yeah, was nominated right. for Academy Award, and he was all through the war. You know, so the awards thing is like it ends with the Academy Awards, but when you're on the award circuit, it starts in December before. And he was he was there for everything. We went to London, um, you know, we went to New York, we went to, you know all these different award shows, and um, 
And he was, you know, there with his canes and just really so modest, but so happy. And um, I think, um, I hope that he wasn't disappointed that he didn't win. He, that, but Kevin Spacey did uh, for Best Actor in the Academy Awards. And, and you know, we were very realistic in, in through the awards um, run-up with him to, you know, being very happy for him, but, you know, who knew who was going to win sort of thing. And not, not building his hopes up about winning or anything like that. But um, And I think that's naturally a letdown after something like that. And um, But I nobody... Ex- um, maybe Jewel, his girlfriend, expected it, but I, I, no one expected it. And um, again, um, he, I think he, whether it was cancer or he was just getting older, he had become quite frail, and he was kind of bedridden. And I think that that's, you know, um, the kind of choice that a man like Richard would make. That he, he didn't want to live that way or be a burden in that way. He, chose, um, he made a choice. He took control of. Yeah, and he made a choice, apparently, according to Jewel, his um, companion, you know, that he was pretty close to not even being able to be strong enough to make that choice. So, um, and at his funeral service, you know, like Wilfred Brimley, there were all these, you know, old cowboys there, and they all used that beautiful expression of crossing the river, talking about Richard crossing the river, and there was zero sense, everybody was very proud. Zero sense of shame because he took his own life. Um, zero sense of shame connected to that. It was the cowboy's way to do it. Was totally the tenor of of the celebration of him. But yeah, it was very. I understood. I understood it. It was shocking. It broke our hearts. But you know, we understood. Mm-hmm.